The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. I hope you had a great Labor Day weekend. And I want to send a special shout-out to my close friend, Yoshiko Dart. Keep leading on, Yoshiko. Keep leading on. Uh, Talking about leading on, that's what I feel our next guest does every day of her life. And every year... I think I've got to have her on this show because even in our community, I often, I don't think that enough people understand the work of not dead yet. Um, and also what, what we're facing, what the disability community is facing. So it is always, always an honor for me to have Diane Coleman as my guest. Diane, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Joyce, for those kind words and for giving me the chance to speak with your listeners. Absolutely. Well, let's start with Not Dead Yet. And by the way, Diane, I have to tell you that I have a Not Dead Yet button in my office uh, that I've had for years because this is just so important to me. But um, I've read a lot about this, and... I'm wondering if one of your decisions to found Not Dead Yet is based on disability history. And what I'm talking about um, is when people were wanting to leave nursing homes with this give me liberty or give me death message. And I doubt that people thought that our society would prefer to say, no to freedom, but yes to uh, dying. But that is, in fact, what happened. So was that one of the things that impacted you? Yes, absolutely. In the 80s, there were several cases that went through the courts involving young men who were quadriplegic on ventilators, and they were stuck in nursing facilities against their will, or in one case, the person feared winding up in a facility as their support systems failed, and they sought the right to turn off the ventilator in court. And some of them very directly said they wanted to get out of the facility or else pull the plug. But in case after case, the courts, you know, painstakingly analyzed how the usual state interest in preserving life and preventing suicide did not apply to these men but never questioned their involuntary confinement in nursing facilities. So in each case, the court said their liberty rights included the liberty to die, but not the right to live free. There was only one case, that of Larry McAfee, where the disability advocates um, in Atlanta, including Mark Johnson, who himself is a quadriplegic and works at Shepherd Spinal Center, you know, they intervened and made sure that Mr. McAfee 
could get out of the nursing facility and into community living. So um, otherwise, in case after case, the person was granted their, you know, so-called right to die, and and they did die. Um, and there were a lot of bioethicists that wrote about this, but they always leave out what the real, you know, issue was of getting liberty from nursing facilities until eventually one of the bioethicists that was involved actually wrote an apology in a magazine about ignoring the disability community input on the issue, but it was really too little too late. You know, we we don't oppose the right to refuse treatment. I'm not saying that, but there was a lot of pressure on these men. It really was coercion, not choice. And it's still the law the way it is with really no protection in terms of ensuring real informed consent or real enforcement of the right to get out of nursing facilities. You know, and that is just terrible. It's just horrible. Um, so, so getting, you know, back to this, I know that that still goes on today. Yes, absolutely. So what is the mission of Not Dead Yet? And everyone, please go to notdeadyet.org um, and read about this organization and make a contribution because, trust me, this could impact you or a loved one in your life. So, Diane, what is the mission of Not Dead Yet? Well, we're a national grassroots disability rights group that opposes the legalization of assisted suicide and euthanasia as deadly forms of discrimination against old, ill, and disabled people. And we help organize and articulate opposition to these practices based on secular social justice arguments. And we we work to ensure that the withholding or withdrawal of life-sustaining medical treatment is truly voluntary, and we demand also the equal protection of the law in terms of law enforcement when um, people are um, killed and their killings are classified as mercy killings um, because their lives are seen as worth less than other people's. So we, we demand equal protection of the law. Those are the, the things that we work on. Well, you know, there's so many things you do, and there's so much we could talk about, but um, I want to start with assisted suicide. Now, I'm sure you've heard this, but even when I've talked about it to people, you know, they'll say, well, Joyce, you know, this person's in pain and suffering, um, and this is best for them. I'm sure you've heard that. Um, and, And how do you counteract that? Well, September is actually National Suicide Prevention Month. And a big part of what we're saying is that people who say they want to take an action to end their lives should be treated equally and receive suicide prevention that genuinely addresses the concerns they face, including pain relief, and not a streamlined path to suicide for some people. You know, whatever the issue, even if the person is terminally ill, their issue can and should be addressed. A big problem with assisted suicide is that it gives doctors the power to discriminate between people who ask for assistance to commit suicide, 
so that some people get suicide prevention while others get suicide assistance. And the difference is the doctor's opinion about the person's health and disability. And what can be seen in the statistics from Oregon, where assisted suicide is legal, is that people who are not actually terminal are getting lethal prescriptions. And the reasons they give for wanting assisted suicide, whether they're terminal or not, are mostly psychological and social, like feeling they've lost their dignity or feeling that they're a burden on others. And we're also concerned about the mistakes, the coercion and abuse that have been documented in some of the Oregon cases, the deadly mix with a profit-driven, cost-cutting health care system, where assisted suicide is the cheapest thing that could be done, um, the prevalence of elder and disability abuse by families and caregivers, and other factors that make legalizing assisted suicide so dangerous. Well, yes, That's because kind of a let's short point answer, out, but. Yeah, let's point out the mental health issues. This would be... Yeah, absolutely. There are people with some... Um, documented mental health histories who are still getting lethal prescriptions. You can be depressed and you can have treatable depression and still get a lethal prescription the way these laws are written because of the standards that are employed by, um, you know, the doctors who are deciding who's eligible. Yeah, well, let's use that example right there. If this person was not... And, uh, you know, let's just say the person has had a serious injury or whatever it is, and they just feel, as you said, it's not worth living. Okay, in the hospital, this is okay because it's assisted suicide. But if they themselves would commit suicide, everyone would be saying, oh, how terrible was that, and we wish we could have done something to help them. Yeah, we are very concerned about the impact of these assisted suicide laws on people who are newly injured or newly ill, maybe they've had a stroke. Um, If assisted suicide becomes a routine medical treatment option, I wonder how many more Tim Bowers cases we might see. Tim Bowers was the hunter who fell from a tree stand about a year ago, and he was awakened from an induced coma on the first day um, from his injury and told he would never be able to hold the baby his his wife was expecting, and he declined medical treatment one day into his injury, which killed him. So assisted suicide laws don't require people to accept medical treatment. They can't require that under, you know, national law, Supreme Court decisions, etc. So a lot of people would be classified as terminal if they didn't get treatment. Um, They would, you know, die within six months. That means they're classified as terminal. So with all the better dead than disabled philosophy that's out there in the general society, thousands of people with disabling injuries could be at risk every year. It's a big worry. Yes, and you know what else? And we'll talk about this more when we come back after the break. But if a person goes in tears to their uh, specialist, their doctor in the hospital, and says, oh, you know, this is so terrible, 
what is this person is going through, and right now they don't even want to live. How do we not know this person would influence that person and say, yes, that's a good idea? Versus, yeah. no, let's get suicide prevention, as you said, or no, let's get social workers in here that know people with disabilities that have survived and could talk to them about that. You have to wonder the influence of a doctor when you, when I have heard people say, well, there's no point of them living. Their life would be terrible. You know what I yeah, mean? There is a lot of, yes, there's a lot of prejudice in the medical profession against um, life with disability, almost more so than maybe the general public even. Maybe that's because they see us at our most difficult times, right? That's when we go to the doctor when we're having trouble. But it's given them a very jaded and negative point of view in so many cases. Not all by any means. We all have some good doctors, but... Um, there's also some very bad ones out there that say these kind of things to people. And, you know, they've got, you know, the authority of a doctor. It influences what people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk to Diane more when we come back from break. I want to urge you to go to the website, notdeadyet.org. Read it. Read examples. Read stories. I'm telling you, you won't be the same. And take time to make a donation. We'll be right back after break with Diane. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. At Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, our mission is to provide superior technology consulting services to our customers while creating career opportunities, independence, and freedom for people with disabilities. While the demand for skilled technology professionals is reaching an all-time high, over 13 million disabled Americans, many of them experts in technology, remain unemployed. Since 1995, Bender Consulting Services Incorporated has worked to solve these critical social and business issues by providing employers with reliable talent and giving individuals with disabilities the chance to display their talents and enhance their lives through solid careers. If you're a person with a disability seeking employment, send us your resume via email to resume at benderconsult.com. For more information about our services, visit www.benderconsult.com in the U.S., and www.benderofcanada.com in Canada. Bender Consulting Services Incorporated, providing and creating employment opportunities, freedom and independence for people with disabilities. www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5787. 
5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back to the show, everyone. We are talking today to Diane Coleman, the founder and president of Not Dead Yet. And before we go any further, I think we have a caller on the line. John, are you on the line? Hello. Hi, John. How are you? Good. Hi. Okay, John Kelly, right? That's right. Go ahead. You have a question or a comment? Um, I'm calling in about the fact that this is Suicide Prevention Week, and in two days it's World Suicide Prevention Day, and yet the California Assembly leadership is right now ramming through an assisted suicide bill with uh, blanket immunity for uh, doctors who act badly and uh, depressed people especially will be put in immediate danger and uh, assisted suicide is suicide promotion, not prevention. Thank you. Diane, do you have anything to say about that? Well, I'd, I'd really like to add that, you know, when the regular legislative session in the Assembly in California was happening, both of the committees that addressed the bill defeated it on a bipartisan basis. And then the California legislature had to go into their special session to deal with the Medi-Cal budget, which is the state Medicaid program. And uh, budget obviously means budget troubles, budget cuts. So at the same time that they're talking about Medicaid budget issues, they've decided to ram through, an, uh, frankly, you know, it should be unrelated assisted suicide bill through committees that don't have the same um, structure and opposition and rules that the regular committees do, and they're we're scared they're going to actually pull this off because it's such an end run around the regular processes in the California legislature. Even the governor has criticized the approach they're taking, but it's, you know, the vote is today or tomorrow in the assembly, and we're we're very concerned. Is that, like, tagged on to the Medi-Cal? Is that how it is? Is it, like, hidden with that? You know, I, I honestly don't know the rule structure. In fact, some of the people dealing with it are saying it's so complex and unusual. Um, John may know more because he's been reading some of the um, direct materials coming out of that uh, battle. John, are you still on the line? Yes, I am. Well, do, yeah. Um, do you kn- what do you know about that? Well, I know that uh, it's pure power politics that the assembly leadership had uh, adopted an amendment that would put at least some post-death restrictions on doctors, perhaps the possibility of justice, and it was going to, you know, have the standard stuff about negligence and wanton misconduct and gross negligence. And the California Medical Association threatened the assembly publicly that it would have to oppose any bill with any liability because it would lead to frivolous lawsuits. And so uh, the assembly caved 
and put in some mealy mouth provision about uh, medical boards doing disciplining. And we know how much, how little trust uh, we now have for institutions policing themselves. Wow, that is terrible. I mean, is there anything that our listeners can do? Is it too late? What, what is the answer to that? Well, I think one thing would be social media. Um, if people are in California, uh, call your legislators. Uh, there is also uh, people to call. I mean, people to email and uh, tweet at at the Second Thoughts website, second-thoughts.org. And, um, and if people can get phone numbers, that would be great um, because AIDS will take the message. Yeah, you know, and I, I, this is Diane. I'd really want to add to that that, you know, California is a major state in terms of influencing the public policy of other states. That's always been true. I mean, I, when I went to law school back in the 80s, they, you know, were talking about that, and it's always been a big issue. Um, so the impact of a bill passing there uh, for assisted suicide is something that everyone across the country should worry about. Um, and you can go to... Uh, social media, um, there's been activity on uh, Not Dead Yet's Twitter, um, as well as Second Thoughts, where some of the legislators who may not be locked into their positions um, can still be contacted with um, important information that could make a difference. And John yes, has been you know, sorry, really helpful in that. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just saying, well, John's been really helpful in getting the word out, so I, I would encourage people to go to second-thoughts.org for the Twitter handles and facts, I mean, and uh, email addresses of some of those um, legislators who really need to hear from people. And Diane uh, and Joyce, I would just add that in the states that uh, the law's been passed in. The states are, are very white, and it turns out that upwards of 97% of participants have been white. And this is a, a bill pushed by uh, more well-to-do, um, whiter, more secular and educated group of people. And people of color oppose this strongly, uh, less uh, less advantaged whites also. There's a real class warfare element to these bills and that the immediate benefit may go to uh, people who think that dignity is something that you can lose if you lose your ability. But the rest of the society believes that dignity is inherent, you don't lose it, and that everyone deserves respect. And uh, the reason that the bill was the uh, ballot amendment in uh, 2012 was, pa- was defeated 
was because of the strong turnout of people of color. Um, okay, okay, let me say this. Don't think it doesn't matter when you call in. Every call makes a difference. <clears throat> so if you're in California, you're listening to the show, do what Diane and John have said. Make that call. Make it now. Make it now. Make that call because it will make a difference. And, John, thank you for calling in. Thank you. All right. Actually, Diane, I think we have another caller on the line. Is Megan on the line? Hello. Hey, is this Megan? Yes, this is Megan. Hi, Megan. How are you? I'm good. Um, I was just calling in to express my support for Diane and John in their efforts to, to help defeat the bill and also to our colleagues in California. And I just wanted to express something uh, as a disability studies scholar. Um, several disability studies scholars have written many treatises against this practice. Like Rosemary Garland Thompson, for instance, has written um, an essay called The Cultural Logic of Euthanasia that discusses that practice in regard to the oppressive aspects of race and disability in America. Um, I remember one time I was at a meeting of the SDS, the Society for Disability Studies, and somebody remarked that uh, they were an atheist, uh, but if there is an afterlife, they didn't think that um, Jack Kevorkian was enjoying it very much, and everyone broke out into applause. So opposition is not out of religious uh, concerns. It's really not out of fear. It's out of knowledge of systemic injustice that no law can remediate. I mean, I'm sure that the um, the authors of this bill have all the best intentions in the world, but their understanding of the justice system is privileged. Um, I really don't think they grasp uh, the fact that people are coerced into doing things and that laws are negated by maneuvering all the time. And I think it's because they haven't experienced that and because they aren't disabled and they don't recognize the gray line um, between the two, uh, between disabled and terminally ill. I mean, some of the things that they say about, you know, loss of bodily functions. I mean, I had severe clinical depression. I remember one time that, you know, sadly I ended up just lying in, in my own... Uh, menstrual blood for days because I couldn't get out of bed. Um, so really, the, the message that they're spending about disability um, is clear, even if they're talking, even if they frame it in terms of terminal illness. Um, and I just wanted to say that. Wow. Well, I'm really glad you called in. Where, where are you from? I'm from Massachusetts, and I'm helping the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network Boston chapter, like, organize um, the opposition to H-1991, which is our assisted suicide bill. And what is your full name again? Uh, Megan Schrader. Well, Megan, I really am glad you called because, um, wow, I just think everything you said was so powerful. And uh, Diane, do you want to make a comment on anything she said? Oh, I, re I really agree, and I, I think that bringing the disability studies um, community into this fight is a very important way to communicate um, about, you know, the history of oppression of people with disabilities, you know, cross-disability um, community realities about that, and that we can all work together to try to 
defeat this legislation. And I know, Megan, I've seen that you've done some really great grassroots work in getting the word out to to uh, the community, especially the um, autistic community, and that's been so meaningful in the struggle. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Um, you know, you know only- what, Megan, when you were talking about this, uh, my good friend Edwin Black wrote the book War Against the Weak because his yeah. parents, yeah, his parents survived uh, the Holocaust. And when I hear you talking about this and Diane, you know there is a definite correlation to what happened with people with disabilities as a result of eugenics in the United States that was then uh, absolutely, you know, terribly magnified in Nazi Germany. But as you well know, it was people with disabilities that were exterminated first. Oh, sure. I did want to say something about that. Um, that All of that is true, but I think that we can communicate our point even without referencing that historical um, event. Like, it's fine to talk about amongst ourselves, but because the, that history is generally not taught in school, um, people don't understand the correlation, and it sounds um, like hysteria, even though it's not. Um, so I encourage people when they call in not to talk about the Nazis, not to talk about eugenics, but to talk about systemic oppression that happens no matter, well, no matter what's happened in history, right now we live in a systemically unjust society. We have systemic ableism, and we have systemic racism and systemic classism. And that's what happened to Barbara Wagner when she was denied um, medical coverage for her uh, chemotherapy and offered assisted suicide, you know, Barbara Coons Lee, the director of Compassionate Choices, paternalistically, like, wrote into the newspaper uh, after she was dead, uh, saying that, you know, she was foolish and she should have chosen palliative care instead. Um, and that might seem to some people like sound advice, except if you think about it, uh, Barbara Coons Lee makes over $200,000 a year and will never, ever need Medicaid and will never be in position. Um, so there's a definite classism going on that is oppressive, um, another thing is uh, CNC has used a tool of privilege and oppression when they go and try to explain away things like Barbara Wagner, like saying, oh, well, she shouldn't have done that. And it really, it wasn't experimental treatment, even though it wasn't. That's what oppressors do, is that they always um, try to hystericize something that, that really is real. They're always tra- explaining away something really bad. Um, so, yeah, I, I would just encourage people to focus more on the, the here and now and, and not on the Nazis, even though all of that's true. But um, it's, I think it's more helpful to think about um, the Nazi thing as a microcosm within someone's own life. Like, they probably, you know, they may not ever make it a law that everyone has to, to kill themselves who's disabled, but uh, just by being systemically disadvantaged, people are placed in a situation where where death is given before they need what they need to live, and it's it's not just. Um, so that's, yeah, just my thought. You know that. what? I think that's a good point, although, as I said, you know, it, it, ha- it was true, and I do think there are correlations, but why that point is so true is that, just as you said, you know, you don't want people to think either that it was a just then. You know, that this one horrible thing happened just then. Because then, you know, your point 
is it's systemic, which means it's ongoing, and it's ongoing to today. Uh, so right. that is really a good point. And as I tell you, Megan, call in anytime. Oh, no problem. I will. It sounds fun. <laughs> All right. You have a good day. All right. You too. Bye, Diane, and, and you as well. Um, what's your name, the, the host? Oh, pardon okay. me. Bye-bye. 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 You know what? You had some really good callers here because I think those were really good points, Diane. Yes, I agree. Very and, much so. You know, I'm going to go back to something they just that you and someone else just talked about. I can remember when Marka Brista called me and she was so upset because she had just seen Million Dollar Baby. Um, and when I, which of course is the show showing this uh, boxer, female boxer, who becomes so uh, successful and then after a terrible accident has quadriplegia and asked to die, and the person played ironically by Clint Eastwood, you know, uh, does what she wants. And I remember Marcus saying to me, hey, no one is happy when they first wake up from having a serious injury, but then after the shock and as time goes on, you don't want to die, you know, because you can live a full, happy life. And, um, you know, I just wondered if you wanted to comment on that. Right. You know, just a little while ago in our call here, we talked about a real-life case of Tim Bowers, the the uh, hunter who was in a, a a tree stand and fell from it um, and was awakened, you know, one day after his injury and um, given a very negative depiction of what his life would be like. You know, you'll never hold your baby that was expected um, soon. And he, um, you know, allegedly made the choice, um, but it seemed like pressure to us to uh, decline treatment, and that killed him. And, and of course, you know, a lot that of was all, that was also people, not true. What he was told, right? It was. It wasn't. He was. He was definitely steered in a certain direction. Was the the feeling you got from the news coverage? I mean, that's all we know. We aren't part of the private, you know, communications. But what came through in the news coverage of or the quotes from the people who spoke with him were, you know, very, very um, negatively biased against life with disability. And um, that is something that, you know, feeds uh, the whole society um, is conveying those kinds of anti-disability, better dead than disabled messages throughout people's lives. So when they acquire a disability, um, you know, their first impressions are going to be, I can't do this. And they, if they're given assisted suicide right away or refuse treatment right away, resulting in their death, either way, um, they've lost the chance to um, find out the real realities of living with disability and um, the fact that society is getting quicker about saying that and, and less committed to providing the supports that, you know, I saw people get 30 years ago if they were injured, you know, um, it's very scary. 
to think of the lives that are um, likely being lost right now for reasons like this. That it's, it's all decision-making behind closed doors. We don't get to see it, but I, I fear that it's happening more and more, and that's very concerning. Well, yeah, right to that point. We'll just go to this point right now. Um, and I have heard this. I have heard medical professionals say, oh, they're going to end up living their life on a ventilator. Or you know what? They have a feeding tube. I mean, this is how it's going to be. This is how their life would be. Well, guess what? I know people with disabilities who live very active lives using a ventilator. Do you know what I mean? I'm saying I think it's how... This is presented to people by medical yes. professionals, you know, in yes, a very absolutely. using these using these terms in a very negative fashion. And then I think about uh, my close friend Josie Badger, who was Miss Wheelchair America and has a PhD and is a national advocate with a ventilator. Th- this is what I mean. I don't think anything is properly in those cases explained, Um, which leads me to you explaining to our listeners, I know you talked about this on your website site, uh, surrogate decision makers. Well, that that is a very important topic area because surrogate decision makers are people who are authorized to make health care decisions for people who are deemed to be unable to make and communicate their own decisions. So that can happen because they're unconscious. Um, after an injury, that would often be the case. Um, and it, it can happen for other reasons, too. And what we think is that it's best for people to appoint someone they trust as their health care proxy, which you can do in a simple document, um, in case they ever need one. Um, and then they should tell that person what their wishes would be. So um, in, a, in a situation that might arise, they've got at least the protection of a person they trust advocating for them and having the legal authority to make decisions. Um, but, you know, any surrogate, whether they're appointed by the person or other kinds that are appointed by law or whatever, are supposed to try to make the decision that the person would want. But they really need the, in, the person's input before a crisis occurs. And sometimes they may not be making the decision the person would want, but just make a decision based on their own prejudices. And, you know, a big concern that we've had with some of the um, cases is that some surrogates even go so far as to want to end a person's life without any clear evidence of what the person would want. They just make a negative quality of life judgment. It may be based on all the disability prejudice in society out there. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be able to say at least that in some cases, the attorneys at the, in the protection and advocacy system, which, you know, every state has a protection and advocacy agency, Sometimes they've found out about cases and gone into court and been able to save the life of a disabled person just by fighting the case, 
they've been able to stop a surrogate from doing something that is obviously not, you know, supported by law, but if, you know, nobody challenges them, they get away with it. Um, and so in some of these cases, they've succeeded um, in saving a person's life, and we filed friend of the court briefs in cases supporting the PNAs doing that and in some other kinds of cases that have come up. But, you know, sadly, I would say most of this occurs behind closed doors and we never hear about it, which is a, a, a big worry. Right. Yeah, because this could be a person that's had an injury and possibly they're not thinking straightly or they have Alzheimer's or, or whatever. And, um, yeah, you th- that is that is a really serious thing. So if you're listening to the show, think about that. Think about that. Take it seriously. Go to notdeadyet.org. Go to the website. Read about this because you need to think about it before you yourself are in that situation, um, which leads me to talking about ethic boards. Um, I noticed reading your material, Diane, that there aren't a lot of people or there aren't any people with disabilities on many of these boards. Uh, is that correct? That's what we hear. And, I, you know, I can't say I've got statistics about it, but, um, and I have talked to a few just incidentally where they've said, yes, we have somebody. But for the most part, no. The, the, some states have statutes that say who would be on ethics committees at hospitals, and they'll include, you know, the lawyers, the doctors, the, you know, religious leaders or whatever, but it doesn't ever mention um, people with disabilities or disability advocates. Um, well, frankly, I mean, I, I think this is really a nothing about us without us kind of situation because the fact is that the decisions, a lot of the healthcare decisions that are made are directly on this issue of do you want to have life-saving or life-sustaining treatment even though you will live with a disability or do you want to die? I mean, that really is what is being decided and to have ethics committees giving people guidance about these decisions um, or even on behalf of a hospital making a ruling um, when a family and doctors are in dispute, you know, it's terrible that they are not including us. You know, there's nothing about us without us, and there it is. It's happening all over the place. So it, it really is important for us to try to, fix that and get yeah. involved. Yeah, I mean, I think you said it all with uh, the nothing about us without us. I think that says it all in this case. And once again, go to the website, notdeadyet.org, read about this, educate yourself. One mistake you make in the disability community is when we just assume, okay, things are going to move along and we don't take time to research these issues, you know, you need to do that. You need to take time. Well, Diane, as you know, before the show started, uh, someone that I talk about 
frequently is Peter Singer, the bioethicist at Princeton University that, since I remember, has had a terrible view about people with disabilities, including uh, infants, killing infants with disabilities. And I, now I know he's on to this um, limiting lives because of insurance reasons and cost. And here's what I always ask people. Why does Princeton keep him? What's the answer to that? <laughs> well, I would have to start out with they invited him and they didn't they knew at the time when they brought him in in 1999 as the uh, chair of their bioethics, you know, some honored chair. Um they knew exactly what his positions were, so they deliberately selected him and, um, you know, made that commitment. And at that time, Not Dead Yet um, led a very large, like 200-people demonstration um, against the hiring, targeting Princeton itself, um, for making that decision and, and calling on them to reverse it. And, you know, they didn't. At the same time, um, one of their trustees at Princeton was Steve Forbes, i.e. guy with money that he gave to Princeton. And he took, he, he resigned from the trusteeship and, and took his money with him, you know. And that wasn't enough to convince them. So they're really locked into this decision, and I, it's very, very disturbing that he is, in fact, you know, educating people who are in this, you know, important Ivy League-type school, um, you know, influencing what their thinking on these ethics issues would be. Um, this year, because of these new comments that he was making... Um, about, you know, even further out there about killing disabled babies and the New York Times article he did about, um, you know, a person with quadriplegia is, oh, let's say half a person or, you know, their quality of life is about half that of a non-disabled person, so that should influence our insurance and coverage decisions. Um, we put out a change.org petition Um and called on Princeton to at least denounce Singer's comments. And, you know, we want Princeton to fire him, but at a minimum they need to hire a qualified person with a disability to, as, as a professor at an equal level to be a counter voice to what he's saying. And so far we get, you know, we don't have any positive response to that. And, in fact, this week on the 10th, um, a a group, Not Dead Yet Pennsylvania group, plus the Centers for Independent Living in New Jersey, are going to be conducting an additional um, demonstration and call to action in Trenton, New Jersey. So hopefully you'll be seeing some coverage of that. 
And just so our listeners understand this, okay, this Peter Singer is a professor, a bioethicist at Princeton University. I want to make sure you understand what he's saying. And am I correct, Diane, that he's saying um, that infants with disabilities should be killed? Uh, close to that. I, I mean, I'd have to go back to the exact content, but what he... What he used to say was that the parents should have the choice to end the life of a disabled infant, um, you know, for their happiness and greater good if they choose it. But in more recent times, he's, his rhetoric is leaning more toward, well, it should happen. Um, it's it's a it's more embracing of that concept. Although I think that he might still say, well, you know, if the parents really want, you know, that baby, okay. But you know, then he's going to raise the question: Well, should the healthcare system or the insurance, you know, industry have to pay for that? You know, so it's it's um really disturbing um, concepts. As so let me, let, me, let me understand this. Uh, by an infant, he is meaning after a baby is born, or what is he meaning? He mean, yeah, he means after born. I mean, obviously he, mean, he includes the before being born, but he also says um, after. And his earliest writings went with the first 30 days of life. That's when you could have this policy that, while parents could not kill a non-disabled one-month-old, they could kill a disabled one-month-old. Um, but it, it, now his more recent um, writings are going beyond anything like that to, you know, basically babies in general. And, you know, he doesn't give an exact time timeline, but it's clearly more like, you know, much more than one month. Okay, do you understand how heinous this is, what you're saying? I mean, what the heck is wrong with Princeton? If you're listening to the show right now, I really hope (coughs) that you write a letter. And how about that petition? Is it still there, or what, what's the yes, deal with absolutely. that? If you, if you go to our website and <clears throat> plug in Peter Singer to the search engine, um, it'll, it'll come up, and you can go, you know, you can you follow the links to go to the petition. And yeah, I would, and if, I would if encourage some... people to still do that to, and, and to support um, the other efforts that the folks that are right in that area there um, our undertaking. Uh, we could mention that, you know, one of the trustees is Governor Chris Christie, oh. a presidential candidate, and that, that, you know, sending messages to his website about, you know, you need to not only denounce Singer yourself, but get your fellow Princeton trustees to do the same thing. And yeah. et cetera, you know. What, what is that website again? Uh, I'm, I'm saying uh, 
well, our our website would link to the petition, but um, Chris Christie's website, either okay. his you know government website or his campaign website. Right, either but way. I'm meaning I'm meaning the petition they get to by going to your website, correct? Yes, if you go okay, to our so website and search the name Peter Singer, it'll come up. Okay, let's get back to this Chris Christie. Boy, that is a great idea. If you're listening to the show, we should barrage him. We really should. We should really hit him hard with this. And I will advocate, by the way, for some new show to bring him on and talk about this because this is such a serious issue. And, you know, if you talked about this nationally, oh, my God, this is so terrible. I mean, it is just so terrible. So, okay, Diane, we're with you on that one uh, because I've been angry about this for, for just a very long time. And I have written and I will continue to write. But just a couple last questions. Um, first of all, Diane, if you had to leave a message with our listeners today, what would it be? Well, I would like to encourage people to get involved, you know, and it really does start, as Joyce said, by learning about the issues. Um, you know, people can go to our website, notdeadyet.org. You can subscribe for free to our blog. And so, you know, then you would get emails when we post something new. Um, and then we have other information about how to get involved, how to contact us, how to, um, you know, make donations and uh, I'm very willing to communicate with people about how they can help us doing letters to the editor, op-ed pieces. Um, a lot of the communication that's needed is through the media. So um, whatever your interest area is, we would just like to encourage you to learn more and get, and get involved. Learn more. Oh, learn more. That is so true because I am sure there are people that have been listening to the show today that are shocked because when I talk to people, they'll say, what? And then I'll say, oh, well, you know, I have epilepsy. You have a significant disability. You better hope that didn't happen to us the Peter Singer advice, or we wouldn't be here right now. I want to tell you again, please go to notdeadyet.org, make a donation, and we end every show with a quote from a national leader who has impacted so many people. And today that quote is from Diane Coleman, who said, assisted suicide is not a benefit, it's a threat. This is Joyce Bender. Thank you so much, Diane, for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right. I look forward to talking to you all next week on Disability Matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you then. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 